PJ, whatever happened to Donald Pierce anyway? He's dead, right? As dead as anyone gets in comics anyway. Cyclops killed him back on Utopia. Wait, Utopia? I remembered him dying earlier. He kinda did. I mean, there wasn't a body, but it looked for a long time like he'd been killed when Fitzroy sent Sentinels after the Reavers. I'd say what a jerk, but in this case it's kinda good riddance. When did he resurface? Fitzroy? In X-Factor, remember? He was Ruby's boyfriend in the 1191 timeline, at least until he died and Layla brought him back without a soul. Uh, No, no, Pierce. Oh, well, Pierce showed up on and off through the years, mostly around Hellfire Club business or to pick fights with Wolverine. And then he spent a while running a team of young X-Men. Wait, seriously? Yeah, I mean, when I say running, I mostly actually mean manipulating into committing assassinations, but, you know, whatever. How'd he get away with that? By dressing up as Cyclops. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 131 of J. and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome also to us recording a second episode in a row right after the Charles Soul one. So if my voice still sounds kind of weird for me getting over a cold, that's why. It's okay, you'll just sound like gravelly and distinguished. I don't think this sounds particularly gravelly or distinguished, but if you, the listeners, think it does, I'll take it. Man, this is a strange arc to be covering because, you know, we're saying previously with the X-Men, but what happened previously is that there are now no more X-Men. Right. So, uh, like we've mentioned in previous episodes recently, we're in this weird era where X-Factor's off in space, Excalibur is off in the multiverse, the New Mutants are off in Asgard, and the X-Men are not really a team at all, and their book just covers a bunch of other characters, you know doing stuff. Well, they're very specifically not a team. They have spent the last arc falling apart. Uh, we saw Longshot quit to go find himself. And then Storm got accidentally killed in a fight with Nanny and the Orphan Maker. I mean, sort of. Uh, yeah, killed isn't scare quotes there. Rogue, Colossus, Havoc, Dazzler, and Psylocke have all gone through the Siege Perilous to parts unknown, presumably with their identities un or overwritten. Right, and as a reminder, the Siege Perilous is a little, like, piece of costume jewelry slash a 1980s iPad that Roma, the daughter of Merlin, gave the X-Men after the fall of the mutants, which basically, when a person goes through it, you know, once it gets bigger, which it does sometimes, it just karmically overwrites their life and they have a new identity. So that's presumably happened to all of those characters. Wolverine had been off doing the solo thing on and off and was captured and crucified by the Reavers. So basically everything is terrible and or non-existent for our favorite merry band of mutants who are not very merry at all right now. Now, there's a second X-connected group that's going to figure very heavily into this and following arcs, and those are the folks who are hanging out on Muir Island. Muir Isle is the Scottish island where Dr. Moira McTaggart, a former colleague of Charles Xavier, does her sciency thing. Is colleague what we're calling it these days? I mean, you know, they were a lot of things to each other. And she lives there. She lives there with Banshee. They are partners at this point. Banshee was severely injured a long while back, has had no access to his powers. Also on Muir Island right now are a few of the remaining Morlocks, led by Callisto. Those are the last of the folks who survived the mutant massacre. Almost the last of the folks, I should say. And we also have a bunch of Warpies over there from England. Those are children who were mutated by the Jasper's Warp back in the old Captain Britain series and various Captain Britain-related series. Rounding out the Muir Island crew is Legion. This is David Holler, Charles Xavier, and Gabriel Holler's son. He has dissociative identity disorder, and each one of his personalities comes with a separate set of mutant powers. Also, some of them are super evil. And we also have the trombone, and the class of second graders, and the monster truck. Some of these things are lies. That may be the deepest cut we've ever done. Listeners, if anybody knows what the we're talking about, we're very impressed. 
So I guess we might as well just go ahead and dive into this bizarre collection of issues on Kenny X-Men number 252 to 255. 252 has the title, Where's Wolverine? And I'm kind of bummed that it wasn't a Where's Waldo style book. Now I'm just imagining like Waldo and his striped shirt with his hat, you know, nailed to a giant X in the rain. Welp, you made some choices just there. Oh man, I'm really glad that wasn't in any kids' books. I would have had even more nightmares. See, instead, I'm just imagining Wolverine claws popped in sort of the iconic pose with the little beanie and the sweater. And you have to find, like, you know, his weird Weapon X project electronic stuff that he wore instead of pants. That's somewhere on the page as well. And he's got, like, a zillion clones, and you have to figure out which one is the real Wolverine because he's missing his left shoe. <laughs> I love everything about this. Someone write this book and draw it. And it's it's it. more a matter of drawing it than writing it. I used to have a, a, a Where's Den Quail book. That's kind of great. It was pretty amazing. I have no idea what happened to it. God, this would have been 1988? Did you ever, 92? Did you ever see the Where's Waldo Saturday morning cartoon? I did not. It was actually pretty great. Like every episode was set in just one of the two page spreads from one of the books. And like there was always so much implied in each of those two page spreads that they could totally get a full episode out of each one. That sounds pretty amazing. It actually was. I mean, I haven't watched it since it was on and I was a tiny human, so maybe it doesn't hold up at all. But regardless. So anyway, where is Wolverine right now? Well, right now, Wolverine is basically where we left him, which is in the former X-Men's Australian Outback base. He has gotten himself uncrucified with the help of the uh, mall rat who's been hiding out in the outback, Jubilee. Jubilee has dragged him to her room, hidden in the back tunnels of the base, while the Reavers, meanwhile, have taken over the entire facility. And I want to rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about the creative team for this issue, because we've got a substitute line art team, and I love them so much. Right, we have Rick Leonardi, who's, he's kind of the go-to substitute for a bunch of Xbox at this point, isn't he? Yeah, he's very versatile. He's very familiar with the characters. Yeah, he's great. He is like the X-Men pinch hitter. But he is being inked this time by Kent Williams, who we last saw on Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. And those loose inks seem to work really well with Leonardi's exaggerated style. And I actually, as much as we seldom talk about the colors, so this issue is colored by Glynis Oliver, as was like every single comic that came out for a 20 year span. Or at least every single X book. Yeah. Yeah. And just the consistency of her colors going from, you know, Silvestri's work and even Jim Lee's work a couple issues ago to uh, Leonardi's here, like it really makes it feel a lot less of a jarring transition. In particular, though, we've got one specific color cue to keep us afloat, and that is Donald Pierce's terrific fuchsia palette. Oh man, his fuchsia cape is an amazing fuchsia cape, and I want to wear it, except that I don't want to get near him because he's terrifying. Yeah, it's kind of protean and billowy and amazing, as Leonardi and Williams draw it. So Pierce is nominally in charge of this group, but with him as well are, actually, we kind of have a blended Reaver team at this point. We have his Reavers, and we have Lady Deathstrike's Reavers. Right, so he's got a Bonebreaker and Skullbuster and Pretty Boy, and she's got Macon, Cole, and Reese, right? Who are the three guards who Wolverine had cut off in the Hellfire Club. So basically, they're the Brady Bunch of Reavers at this point. Oh man, this changes everything. Now I'm just picturing the grid of nine people, except it's all horrifying cyborgs who are murdering everybody around them. I mean, pretty much, yeah. Like, the extent to which Pierce and Lady Deathstrike are Reaver Dad and Reaver Mom and, like, the ones who sort of keep the rest of their obnoxious Reaver kids in line, I cannot overexpress it. And once I thought of that, it became the filter through which I read this entire arc, and I'm really sorry for that. Oh, man, it's a story of a lovely lady whose very physical form has become a mockery of all that it means to be human. I love everything about this plan. The Reaver Bunch does fit the Brady Bunch rhythm, too. Perfect. Now, speaking of family relationships, we actually almost kind of do, in a sense, because Pierce and Lady Deathstrike have this kind of unexpected but consistent romantic connection, almost. Because they're the Reaver Bunch! 
Oh, that's the only explanation. Their mom and dad Reaver. Their romance is what has blended these two Reaver families. And now they have to deal with their various Reaver crushes and Reaver jealousy. And the fact that sometimes when they're bad, Pierce takes away their entire bodies, which definitely happens during this arc. Well, I don't remember the Brady Bunch having quite so much of an S&M quality to the parents' relationship. Because like the way Pierce treats Lady Deathstrike, like he's very cordial to her, but he also, you know, throws her around a lot. Although she, well, I love this quote right here. Then Pierce... As a woman and machine, and as a warrior, you will find, possibly to your sorrow, that I always give better than I get. At which point she flips him for real when he's, you know, coming on too strong. And I actually really enjoy the way that Lady Deathstrike is written in this era. Lady Deathstrike's a hard character to capture. I mean, you can see her done right, for instance, in that Marguerite Bennett story that she did for uh, The Logan Legacy, if you remember that one. Yeah, that's a terrific story. It's her and Marguerite Sauvage, I think. And that's very much the Deathstrike we're seeing here, one who is absolutely ruthless, but who's also very, very rooted in her sense of honor. And that comes into play when the Reavers are searching the base, and she finds Pretty Boy in Wolverine's quarters, messing around and basically being an obnoxious high schooler, like he is, kind of, (laughs) in murdery brain tentacle ways, with Wolverine's honor sword, the honor sword of the Yashida clan. Right, yeah, he's all like, you know, cutting up the mannequin that's holding Wolverine's samurai garb and just being a total douchebag about it. And Lady Deathstrike, I mean, okay, let's get this out of the way. Lady Deathstrike's enmity with Wolverine makes no sense. Like, basically, she's mad that his skeleton stole her dad's stuff. Yeah, Pierce's doesn't actually really make any sense either. Wolverine cut his arm one time. That's basically it. Wow. I mean, I guess he did expose him as a cyborg to the rest of the Hellfire Club, which presumably led to him getting kicked out of the inner circle for reasons that I can't quite pin down, because why would they even care? I can't imagine they would. Like, that's the one thing that they're really petty about. But yeah, so Lady Deathstrike's origin of her enmity with Wolverine doesn't make sense, but the relationship that that enmity creates, that sort of burning hatred of Logan, but also the respect for him as a warrior, for me, that's what makes the character so compelling, you know? You know who aren't nearly so compelling? Macon, Cole, and Reese. Okay, so yeah, Macon, Cole, and Reese, those are the Hellfire Club guards from right before the Dark Phoenix saga, or during it, depending on how you count, that Wolverine initially seems to have killed, but then they sort of walked back on that editorially, and they just got cut up a lot. They are rapidly growing into the three stooges of our extended Reaver family. It's kind of ridiculous. Like, at one point when they're searching the base, because everyone's looking for Wolverine at this point, because they want to, you know, torture him some more. When they're searching the base... Cole is talking about how much he hates healthy food, and so he smashes the refrigerator because it's full of healthy food. Yeah, no, he just yells, I hate health food, at one point. It's, wow. It's kind of great. They're the comedy trio of 1989. Well, all I can think of is Iggy Pop in The Adventures of Pete and Pete just staring at the camera and going, I hate canoes. Oh, geez. Yes, that's a good thing to come back to. Yeah, always. But yeah, like at one point, they're talking about the Siege Perilous that the X-Men went through, which I have to kind of wonder, I mean, how do they know about what the Siege Perilous does? Cyborg stuff. I don't, I don't know. They're Cyborg ridiculous. intuition. I love the way they talk. Allow me. Too darn metaphysical for me, bro. I like my fights like I do my babes. Up close and personal. As opposed to metaphysical babes? I mean, it's the Marvel Universe. That is actually a possibility within the dating pool. That's actually a really good point. But yeah, they just keep referencing movies over and over again. So one of them says... This town's the Nostromo, we're the crew, and he's the alien. Um, actually, whichever reefer that was, the alien in this scenario would definitely be Jubilee. That's true, because Jubilee is, in fact, hiding, watching them, waiting for the correct moment to, well, as it turns out, not strike, but run. And she is the sassiest xenomorph. Major League Lumpoids think they're, like, so cool. Probably the luckiest moment of their day is when they find their feet to put on their shoes, you know? 
Because Jubilee never stops talking, even if it's only to herself, which charms the hell out of me. I gotta say that, like, as much as she's putting up this brave face to the reader, to herself, like, the art and the writing really do sell the fact that she is terrified. She can also get away with with movie references in ways that I think the Reavers can't so much. They kind of come off like grown-ups trying to talk like how kids talk. She just kind of comes off as herself with a few notable exceptions. The upstairs is, like, jam-crammed with the oppos. Ultimax, bad news bears, you know, total toadstools. I don't know what that means. Miles, this is how everyone talked in 1989. Don't you remember? Oh, yeah, right. I, I, I totally remember, Jay. But yeah, so she does head back to Wolverine. She's helped him off the cross, and she's been attempting to take care of him. Because it's important to remember that in this era, while Wolverine does have this invincible healing factor in the present day, well, he did before he lost it and then died, at this point, it was finite, you know? If he got messed up enough, it would get burned out to the point where it couldn't really do anything for a while. And he is in bad shape at this point. He has been really severely injured. He can't really move. His wounds are infected. He is actively hallucinating Carol Danvers and Nick Fury, who, to their credit, are yelling at him to stop threatening Jubilee. Right, who he doesn't even realize is there. And in fact, once he pops his claws and lunges at her, she just zaps the crap out of him, and he gets knocked against the wall, even going so far as to apologize. My mistake. Next time, I'll do better if I live so long. Now, this is one of those notes, and actually throughout this arc, we're going to see threads that Claremont meant to play out over the course of the 90s. This is one of them. Right, and a lot of this we've gotten from Brian Cronin's Comic Book Legends Revealed series at CBR. That's a really good series. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. So he tells us about how Claremont was actually planning to have Wolverine's gradual weakening, both of his healing factor and of his fighting skill as he got more and more messed up, eventually lead to his death fighting Lady Deathstrike and later resurrection as a sleeper agent by the ninja clan The Hand. This would be done much later in the story arc Enemy of the State written by Mark Millar. And so, yeah, I mean, there are so many 90s plans, like you mentioned, Jay, that Claremont just didn't get to. We're probably going to come back to those pretty heavily in a future episode, but for now, we'll just bring them up here and there as they're relevant. Now, the Reaver Bunch is still trying to hunt down Wolverine or whichever of the X-Men may still be hanging around. They are upping their game. They are bringing in the robot dingoes. Do you remember that episode of the Brady Bunch where, like, Jan and everybody got a bunch of robot dingoes to go hunt down a hairy guy out in the desert? I do. I do. Uh, Deathstrike, however, insists on going alone because, you know, she's a badass ninja lady with giant fingernails. She doesn't want to fight with a bunch of dingoes by her side. Yeah, why the hell is she hanging out with these guys? They're all terrible. They're all cyborgs. That's really the only reason I can think of. I guess they all hate Wolverine. There are a lot of people who hate Wolverine. That's She true. could find a much better group than this. Like, she has her pick of half the villains in the Marvel Universe. Pretty much, Yeah. But it turns out to be a good call because as the rest of the Reavers travel together, they fall into a trap Wolverine set. Bonebreaker sees Wolverine's mask peering over a bunch of water pipes and, of course, completely opens fire, thus flooding the Reaver tunnels and sending them all washed away, which is pretty undignified. Deathstrike, meanwhile, stashes Wolverine's honor sword in Jubilee's hidey hole, which she's located, basically figuring that either she'll kill Wolverine or he'll kill her, and either way, one of them is probably going to want to come back for the sword. Yes, although I'm pretty sure that plotline gets dropped for a long time and then the sword just shows up somewhere later. But, you know, these things happen. What Wolverine's actually busy doing is confronting Pierce and his robot dingo buddies. Yeah, and Wolverine just cuts the crap out of all the dingoes because even if he's beaten all to hell, he's still Wolverine. He's not going to get taken out by some dingoes. I mean, that's what he calls people when he's mad at them in Pride of the X-Men. Any more toys, Pierce? Or this once, you're going to be man enough to take me on yourself? Come on, why hesitate? I can barely stand. Makes this a fair fight. Of course, I should warn you, I ain't working alone. 
Eat plasma dirtbag! And Jubilee zaps the crap out of Pierce, burying him under a bunch of rubble, which there's a lot of rubble around here. It's very handy. So here's a question. Do you hear the animated series music in your head every time she makes an entrance? Because I totally do. That's interesting that you say that, because for me, Jubilee in the comics and Jubilee in the cartoon are just such different characters from one another. Like, the Jubilee in the comics is just so defined by this insecurity and terror that she covers up with bravado in a way that I don't think really came through in the cartoon. In the cartoon, she's more the viewer surrogate, and in this, she's really not. But her entrances all have that sort of cartoonish, buoyant feel to them. Like, anytime she pops up in a fight, anytime she's got a one-liner, like, they all feel like that's where you cut to commercial. Okay, that is perhaps a very good point. I'll totally buy that. Yup. And, uh, yeah, so this is really the beginning of the Wolverine-Jubilee dynamic that everybody knows so well, largely, in fact, from the cartoon. Stay with me, girl. You're marked. Can you make it on your own? I can try. What the heck? I got nothing better to do. But you gotta do something about this macho attitude. I mean, it is, like, so lame. And so Wolverine and Jubilee head off and escape, and we're actually not going to see them for quite a few issues, which means that the remaining vestiges of the X-Men in, you know, X-Men, that's it. They're gone at this point. Yeah, everyone else's memory is pretty much wiped, which brings us to a quick look at some of their compatriots, former and future. Now, we said that there was no X-Men right now, but there's going to be a group who's basically operating in their stead. Those are the X-Men of Muir Island who will be forming up over the course of the next several issues. First off, we have Amanda Sefton and Alison Stewart. And as a reminder, Amanda Sefton is the daughter of Margali Sardos, who we met in an old uh, X-Men annual that we haven't actually ever covered, where the X-Men went to hell to rescue Nightcrawler. And Brigadier Alison Stewart is the leader of the Weird Happenings organization. Now, the last time we saw Amanda Sefton was, I think, in Uncanny X-Men number 206. That was when the Beyonder had really messed up the X-Men, and Nightcrawler was doubting his belief in God and his belief in anything. And so even though he and Amanda were in love, he basically accused her of using her magical powers to manipulate him into feeling that way. And they, uh, you know, split. The last time we saw Brigadier Stewart, she was fighting alternate universe Nazi Callisto and Moira McTaggart, who had come through a multiversal portal created by Widget with a train propelled by a giant purple dragon. And that's why Excalibur is the best. (laughs) But yeah, Amanda's looking around the lighthouse. She had apparently had heard that Nightcrawler had resurfaced and was now on this team Excalibur in Britain. The place is, of course, empty because the cross-time caper has started, but she does run into Brigadier Stewart, who explains what's going on. Namely, yeah, Excalibur got on a train and then suddenly it was in another dimension. Sorry, we're just sort of waiting for them to come back. Now, while the Brigadier and Amanda are meeting up by the lighthouse, Forge is busy meditating near Yellowstone Park. Yeah, now, Forge we haven't seen in a while. But as you may recall, he is sort of a man of two worlds. He's very much a technologist. That's his mutant power. He can make any sort of machine or invention. And that's the world he's chosen to live in. But he's also a Native American shaman. He's a Cheyenne, I believe. And he's starting to really reconcile those two halves, which, you know, about time. As much as the conflict between them has been an interesting sort of definition of his character. And Forge's last intensive involvement with the X-Men was in Fall of the Mutants. It was when he effectively appeared to have sacrificed the lives of the entire team. And as far as he knows, that's exactly what happened. And that was all done to right a wrong he created back in Vietnam when he summoned a bunch of demons, including this being called the Adversary. So Forge has a vision or a dream. He sees Gateway chained up outside an old-style Wild West saloon. And inside is a guy that we recognize as Amal Farouk. The Shadow King. That's right. This is the mortal guise of the Shadow King, this evil spirit dude that Professor Xavier fought many, many years ago. Because of the gamers movies, I always want it to be like, the Shadow King? The Shadow King. The Shadow King. Exactly. 
But more importantly, what he sees is Storm, Aurora Monroe, the love of his life chained up in a cage in the back of the saloon. And as he watches her, Storm sort of goes from an adult woman and morphs into a child, into a young girl. So that's weird. Unfortunately, Forge doesn't have the chance to ask Storm what's up because he is quickly ensnared into a psychic arm wrestling match with the Shadow King. Okay. Yes, literally. So you know how like when Professor Xavier fights the Shadow King on the astral plane, they get this cool gladiator armor and this big epic fight? Yeah, this is an arm wrestling fight until Forge gets so pissed off that he punches Amal Farouk in the face, shattering his head. That's cheating. I'm pretty sure you get DQ'd from arm wrestling if you do that. It's possible. But as this, you know, jars Forge out of his vision... He realizes, okay, based on what I just saw, A, that was creepy and there's some weird Egyptian dude who apparently is evil, and B, Aurora is alive. The X-Men must somehow be alive. He is mystically certain of this, and so he gets off his butt and starts thinking about where to go next as well. Now, if you're thinking that he and Amanda and Alisand might all eventually end up in the same place, you, in fact, would be correct. And they're not the only ones. But currently on Muir Island... Moira McTaggart is busy having a hell of an argument with another character who hasn't graced the pages of Uncanny X-Men in a while, and that is the one and only Magneto. Now, we last saw Magneto in New Mutants number 75, when the New Mutants basically said, screw this, we don't want to work with you anymore, you are clearly turning into a villain. And that was really what the Marvel Universe was doing with Magneto at this point. Supposedly, this has a lot to do with the fact that John Byrne, who is a little bit more of a traditionalist as far as how he wanted to portray Magneto, wanted to be able to use him as a full-on villain again. Now, Claremont wasn't really a big fan of this, and in fact, this is where that comes through. Now, villain or not, Magneto has failed his job in a pretty big way. He was supposed to be raising, defending, protecting the New Mutants. They have scattered to the four winds. Several of them have effectively been killed, and Maura McTaggart is not happy. Charles never should have offered. I never should have accepted. What? You figure you'll dump the barons, and I should remind you at this point that we're not doing accents, even phonetically written one. Like so much excess baggage with a few cold words and go your merry way, and there's the end to it? What comes next, O oh master of magnetism? Another brotherhood of evil mutants? Restrain yourself, woman. The devil I will. This is really cathartic because at this point Magneto's done some bullshit, but at the same time he's really had some bullshit inflicted upon him, so they're kind of both right, you know? No sooner does their conversation escalate than... Moira's current security, namely Callisto in a really peculiar bikini and a really high ponytail, along with thigh-high boots and a dagger, smash through the door to make sure that there is not a fight that she needs to dive into. So, does she just enter all rooms that way, just diving through the air and knocking doors off their hinges? Like, should she join X-Factor? They go through so many door frames this way on Muir Island. I also want to say, like, the clothes that people wear on Muir Island are just goddamn baffling. Yeah, Moira's dressed pretty weirdly later as well, it's Moira's true. Moira's basically always dressed like she's about to go clubbing during this era, and it's really peculiar and also really inappropriate for lab wear, for reasons that have nothing to do with character performance and everything to do with basic safety. Now, I will say, the fact that Moira's getting a little more sexified and harsh at this point, there is story justification to that to a degree, and we'll get to that pretty soon. God damn it, woman, get some protective eyewear! But regardless, Magneto's talking about how he's got to be strong enough to protect mutants. He's protesting Moira's protests. I must, because there is no one else. The X-Men are dead. X-Factor has vanished. And the new mutants are but children. Too much is at stake, Moira. I cannot fail. Don't you see, Magneto? If you lose yourself in the process, you already have. Don't you see, Doctor? 
If everyone is after me, the arch-villain who has, as expected, finally reverted to type, no one will be after you. Man, this super, super, super reminds me of the letter that Cyclops leaves for Wolverine when he breaks out of prison after Avengers vs. X-Men. You know, I can kind of see that. It's it's got a bit of a Dark Knight thing going on. But what it also does is this beautifully elegant solution for these uh, different portrayals of Magneto that are seemingly contradictory. Because the way Claremont wrote Magneto was always as this very complex, great character who had a really good heart, who was just trying and trying and trying, and who we were seeing progress with. The way Louis Simonson and John Byrne have been writing him, not so much. He's been falling further and further into villainy. And this lets us basically have our cake and eat it too. We can see Magneto's actions of getting more and more villainous, as making sense because apparently his motivations totally line up with the way Claremont had been writing him. And I really like that it remains ambiguous as to whether that stance is truth or just rationalization on Magneto's part. We never really find out. And I appreciate that. I think that actually works very well with the character. You mentioned Byrne, and this was in preparation for a specific event, right? Yeah, this was in preparation for specifically the Mutant Wars. That was going to be this giant crossover that was going to happen in a year or so after this involving all of the X-Books. It was going to be all the different mutant and human factions coming to a head. Basically, it was everything Magneto was talking about in New Mutants number 75 that motivated him to join up with the Hellfire Club and turn into a person the New Mutants didn't want to trust at all. It never, however, happened. Instead, we got the Extinction Agenda. As to why, nobody really knows. This was while Chris Claremont and Louis Simonson were still running the X-Universe. And so, in theory, if they still wanted to do the Mutant Wars, they could have, but we never got that crossover. Now, Moira McTaggart, recognizing the threats that come with an impending crossover event, sends Callisto to New York to seal up the tunnels in the basement under the X-Mansion where all of the secret stuff is so that villains like Magneto won't be able to use them. Callisto heads off, and in the next issue, she's going to be captured and tortured by Mask's Morlocks. Mask has reunited the Morlocks under those. We're not going to go into that here, but man, Mask is a super jerk. He is, and he's actually going to be a surprisingly major ex-antagonist for the next couple of years on and off. Yeah, Callisto's going to stick around as well, but for right now, she's out of the picture. Now, later on, on Mirror Island, after Callisto's gone, after Magneto's gone, they receive a distress call from a nearby ship. Apparently, the crew is slaughtering each other, and the person calling with this distress call is none other than the former Polaris, the former partner of Havoc, Lorna Dane. Now, for some very quick previously in the Lorna Dane files, she had been possessed by Malice, who is a sentient and angry necklace for a fairly, well, okay, slightly more complicated than that. But for our purposes now, a sentient and angry necklace for a very long time, she'd broken free of that only to be captured by Zaladane, her on-again, off-again sister, because Lorna basically doesn't have any consistent relatives. It's Maximoff twins level ridiculous. Oh, it might be even worse. Yeah who took her to the Savage Land and sucked away Lorna's magnet powers, at which point Lorna started being nigh invulnerable and huge and super strong. Right. So, you know, that's the thing. Also, her hair is just getting better and better. It's this giant green, like, it it makes Wolverine's hair look like, you know, Professor Xavier's hair. I mean, it's still roughly Malice styled right now. It is, yeah. But regardless, what she's saying is that all these people are slaughtering each other. She doesn't know what's going on. She needs help. They need help. And Moira tells Banshee, hey, there's too much risk. I mean, you don't really have your powers anymore. Well, there was that one, you know, retribution affair story in Marvel Comics Presents, but we're not going to mention that. But yeah, Moira's worried he's not going to be okay because of the problems with his powers. Banshee decides that there's only one way to find out, and for the first time since X-Men 119, he uses his powers. Yeah, he lost his powers in a fight with Moses Magnum. You remember Moses Magnum, P.I.? That guy was pretty great. God, that was so long ago. That Phoenix was still alive. Yeah, it was a while ago. It was when the team was split up and each half thought that the other half was dead. Mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah, Banshee does manage to rescue Lorna from this ship, although at the cost of the ship itself, like, it's just sinking, all the people are trying to kill each other, and they all die, which you'd think would be mentioned a little more. But regardless, Lorna's okay, so at least that's a thing. Now, Lorna is concerned that perhaps the animosity between the crew members may somehow have been her fault. And I think we should take a moment to talk about what's going on with Lorna between the lines, behind the panels, and long term. Because while this would be a spoiler if this were a current comic, this is good context to have reading it in retrospect. So basically, the Shadow King is the big bad of this entire era. And if Claremont had stuck around, would have been the big bad for even longer, well into the 90s, up until, I think, Uncanny X-Men number 300. That was supposed to be, like, the big final conflict with the Shadow King. But what's going on right now is that the Shadow King's energy has been gradually seeping into Lorna for confusing reasons. And so her size, her strength, her invulnerability, and the negative emotions that seem to pop up all around her, that's his fault right there. Yeah, the loss of her mutant powers and possibly the removal of Malice have left some sort of spiritual or psychic void in her, which the Shadow King has rushed in to fill. He's going to be gradually possessing and making his way into more and more of the folks on Muir Island over the course of the next several arcs. Right. But in the meantime, in the Outback, so you remember how the tunnels got flooded when Wolverine, you know, fooled Bonebreaker? So the Reavers are cleaning up those tunnels as Pierce is rebuilding the Reavers that got all messed up by that big catastrophe. Yeah, Mick and Cole and Reese are basically okay. Bonebreaker, Skullbuster, and Pretty Boy are not in great shape. Yeah, and Pierce is rebuilding them. And if we haven't mentioned before, it's been retconned at this point that those Reavers, like the original Reavers that the X-Men fought before they took over the Australia base, were actually built by Pierce. Like, Pierce is a character that when he showed up, his deal was, I'm a cyborg in the Hellfire Club. And there's just been sort of more and more context built around him every time he shows up. The important part, though, here is that he's Reaver Dad. He totally is Reaver Dad. Now you boys, I know you've gotten yourself into trouble, but... So, while Reaver Dad is doing repairs, what's Reaver Mom up to? Well, Reaver Mom is actually, with a sniper rifle, through the scope, watching Wolverine and Jubilee escape. She's watching them drag themselves away from the Outback base. She has the option of shooting them. She could totally take them out right now, but she decides not to. Not today. And not like this. Struck down from ambush when you are too weak from wounds to defend yourself. As I am samurai and daimyo, warrior and nobility, so too in your own way are you, to be treated with respect. When we meet the final, fateful time, it will be as equals on a field of honor. And this is the Lady Deathstrike that I like. This is why I love her as a character. Deathstrike celebrates her moment of nobility by heading off to Psylocke's swimming hole to go for a quick swim in the swimsuit that she has thoughtfully packed along with all of her reaver stuff and swords. I always just got the impression it was what she wore under her outfit all the time. But regardless, I really do love the way that Sylvestri and uh, Lealoa, who also helps with art on this one, draw her. I mean, she's elegant. She's classically beautiful. But she's also covered in, you know, robot parts. I mean, that beauty is compromised, is altered at every square inch by what she's done to herself. And I think it's a really good metaphor for kind of what Lady Deathstrike represents, you know, sacrificing one's humanity for revenge, letting one's ideology, one's toxic, destructive ideology, destroy what makes you, you. I mean, that's certainly one perspective, and I can certainly see her being used as a metaphor for that. But I would like to state for the record that she looks fucking awesome. She also just looks fucking awesome. That's yeah, true. She really does. She and Pierce do their weird power struggle flirty thing. And man, I just, I don't buy them as a couple. Yeah, I don't really either. I mean, it's clear that's the intent and Claremont and Sylvester do their best to sell that dynamic, but it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, Pierce is a total douchebag. Like, I mean, for me, their relationship read as a leg humping dominance play from Pierce 
and manipulation from her. Yeah, yeah, I guess I can buy that as well. But regardless, they decide that based on the research they've done, Wolverine's clearly not around here anymore. Where could he have gone? Well, probably to one of the only places where he still has living friends, Muir Isle. So the Reavers are taking a vacation. Come on, Brady's getting the bus. Which brings us, I believe, to Uncanny X-Men 254, all new, all different. Here we go again with yet another riff on a cover riff that we will see again and again and again and again, which is the Giant Size X-Men number one cover, the new team sort of busting out of a hole. And this new team is unexpected, and we'll get to who they are. But yeah, I mean, this book is really trying to sell this as a new beginning between the title referencing Giant Size, the cover referencing Giant Size, the fact that, you know, all of the previous main characters are gone or dead in some fashion— It's a bizarre, brave move on Chris Claremont's part. And I gotta say, like, I still don't know whether I think it works. Like, I think it's fascinating. I don't know whether it feels like X-Men or not, but I totally applaud the guy for making this decision. It's a cool way of upending his entire book status quo. Meanwhile, Moira McTaggart has decided to up her inappropriate labware game. She is performing a series of tests, which involve, by the way, live sparks on a much more safely attired Polaris Moira herself, however, is dressed in a little tiny leather miniskirt and a matching cropped bustier and long gloves. The gloves are a good touch. That's important in this kind of environment. But how much bare skin she has going on relative to what she's doing strikes me again as probably against a lot of recommendations and regulations. And once again, Moira, for fuck's sake, get some protective eyewear. The Shadow King hates Osha is what it comes down to. Everyone hates Osha. It's X-Men. But yeah, she's basically trying to figure out what happens to Lorna, what happens to the former Polaris, and she can't really figure much out. She does, however, say, well, the way your magnetism was taken away by Zaladane, I believe that scientifically speaking, she must actually have been your sister. And that will never be retconned away and no one can ever contradict it. To which I just say, let's move on. There's no good explanation for Polaris's new powers. She's absorbing energy. She's getting stronger. She's getting more physically powerful. What Moira doesn't know is that the energy that Polaris is apparently absorbing is, again, actually the Shadow King. It's sort of. It's complicated. We'll get more to the details of that later. But the band is getting together. Banshee, having rescued Lorna, has gone off to meet Amanda and Allison at the Ullapool Dock, where they're going to head to Muir Island. But alas, the one hovercraft operator has long been killed. Oh, man. So they have to bring a different boat. It's true. If only Angus McWhorter was still here, perhaps all of this trouble could have been averted. Never. Oh, that freaking guy. But regardless, they all have some history. So Banshee and Amanda have worked together back when he was an X-Man and she worked with the X-Men a whole bunch when she was involved with Nightcrawler. And Allison mentions that in her early days with the Weird Happenings organization, Banshee was one of her first Weird Happenings, which may or may not be a euphemism. Right. But I do really love that because, I mean, the dynamic they have right here, like he's this sort of easygoing, rakish, almost scoundrel. And she's just this sort of uptight, prim and proper cop. And they're just like baiting each other constantly. It's wonderful. Hey, dude, Banshee spent a really long time as an Interpol agent. I think actually longer than he spent as a supervillain. So right. But he's still rakish. He's always been rakish. Well, he has scoundrelly sideburns. Oh, they're such good sideburns. So yes, they start to head back to Muir Isle, you know, so that everybody can meet up and compare stories when he just gets fucking shot by a sniper and falls out of the boat and everything is terrible. Fortunately, he's traveling with a sorceress who is able to pull Alicent overboard as well, turn both of them into mer-creatures of some sort, grab onto Banshee, who's actively bleeding out in the water, and teleport the three of them back to the medical bay at the Muir Island facility. Where they're met by not only Moira McTaggart and Lorna Dane, but also Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander. Let's talk for a second about who they are. 
So these are respectively a cop and a nurse from New York. They were in the Demon Bear saga, that amazing Bill Sienkiewicz New Mutants arc. And over the course of said saga, got transformed into Native Americans in one of the more uncomfortable bits of New Mutants. Right. That bizarre handling of race aside, they are actually really cool characters, and I'm glad to see them again, and they're going to be part of this new team of substitute X-Men. You know what I don't quite know how to parse here? What's that? The extent to which Tom in particular appears to have adopted cultural trappings. That is weird. Yeah, like the way he wears headbands and fringe and stuff like that. Like, that seems odd. You'd think he would just want to dress the way he used to dress. Well, and it brings up some really odd questions with regards to race and heritage and you know, demon bear magic and stuff like that. I mean, the whole thing is just pretty uncomfortable, racially speaking. Yeah, man, not good choices, early Claremont. But they're hanging out on Muir Island these days. And Moira orders the whole group to go change into X uniforms because they're bulletproof. They're going to be a lot safer in those than anything else they could be wearing. Amanda says, oh, no problem. I can just magic them up. And it goes slightly astray. Because suddenly everybody's wearing like super leathery, strappy, spiky BDSM gear. Yeah, man, Tom is definitely dressed like He-Man. I mean, okay, He-Man dressed like a leather daddy, Jay. Yeah, no, so they basically look like they're about to go on stage to open for Man of War and um, are all a little bit shocked and horrified, despite the fact that they're really matching Moira at this point, because she's still in the all-leather get-up with the miniskirt and the crop top and the gloves. It's true, they can all go clubbing together. Yeah, Um, man, Muir Island at this point just always looks like it's about to go out clubbing. Yeah, but regardless, this is, once again, more weird Shadow King influence. We'll, again, get to that later. But they do end up changing into X uniforms, and I gotta say, like, if you're trying to sell a new group of characters as a new team of substitute X-Men, this is actually a pretty good way to do it. You make them look the part, you put them in the black and yellow. And you give them a pretext for putting that on that's not just, you're a superhero team, it's, you know, we have to put on these uniforms because stuff, and now we all have to fight in concert and come together as a team, which they do almost immediately, because the Reavers attack. Now, Banshee is back on his feet at this point, right? He is, because in fact, there was the whole retribution affair thing, which again, isn't really mentioned here, but more importantly, he's been taken to one of the surviving Morlocks, that being Healer, the Sewer Wizard. Well, and the Sewer Wizard's healing has not completely cured him, but it's gotten him back on his feet enough at least to join back into the fight. And they need every hand they can. Not only do we have Tom and Sharon and Amanda and Allison and Mora and Banshee, we've also got a wild card running around with this group of X-Men, and that is Legion. Yeah, now Legion is an incredibly powerful mutant. I mean, the three of the personalities inside him are a very powerful telekinetic, a powerful telepath, and a powerful pyrokinetic. And at this point, he doesn't have them under control at all. So those different parts of him are taking over one after another and just inflicting chaos upon the battle. Yeah, the telepath is fine, but the pyrokinetic and the telekinetic are not good people. We see that first immediately when the Reavers attack and Legion drops his telekinetic shield just in time to get Sunder, one of the Morlocks, shot and killed. Right. I mean, well, technically he doesn't get shot and killed until later, but he might as well this time and I think it would have worked better story-wise. But it's actually a really shocking moment because he's protecting all of the people around him, all of the various Warpies and Morlocks, and then just grins without moving and we see Sunder fall in a hail of gunfire. And Sunder's this sort of like gentle giant character. He's very childlike. So this sucks. Yeah, man, David is the asshole chaos gamer who's been passing notes with the DM for like the last 30 sessions and then just suddenly turns on the team. Pretty much, yeah. Now, Amanda and Alisand, they're in their New Mutants outfits as well, 
they're actually fighting Macon Cole and Reese and end up losing because Amanda Sefton forgets that cyborgs are made in part of cold iron, which is kind of immune to magic in the Marvel Universe and mythology in general. You know who doesn't forget what cyborgs are made of? The Reaver Bunch at any point, because in almost every panel they're in, they go on and on about how they're cyborgs and their bodies are mostly metal and they're cyborgs. And did you know they're cyborgs? Also, I hear they're cyborgs. Get a fucking hobby, Reavers. They do have a hobby. It's it's murder. And talking about how they're cyborgs. Well, that too. Learn to knit. I don't know. Regardless, they managed to capture Amanda Sefton and Alison Stewart, and that's just sort of going to get dropped. There are a lot of plot lines that come up around this era and just sort of get forgotten. So the next time we see Amanda and Alisand, it'll be in completely other circumstances, and the Reaver capture will have been pretty much forgotten. Now, the folks on Muir Island aren't the only ones who are aware of the sudden Reaver incursion. Back in Washington, D.C., Destiny finds herself dreaming. Yeah, Destiny is a member of Freedom Force. Her mutant powers involve being able, as you might imagine from her name, to tell the future. And she sees herself inside this crystal mansion— There's a clock near midnight that's on her chest, and there's an hourglass that's almost empty on her forehead, and this is significant. Now, she sees everything in Crystal around her, including Raven Darkholm, Mystique, her lover, her friend, and her partner. Raven Darkholm, the name she chose for herself, just as she did the code identity Mystique. She has never looked more lovely. This is Raven as I know her, the spirit soul within my dearest friend, full of strength and courage and passion. That I have loved from the moment we met. Isn't it nice seeing gal pals being such good friends and expressing such platonic affection for each other, palling around like they do what with the makeouts and stuff? Yeah, if there was ever any subtlety about Destiny and Mystique's relationship, that subtlety is just gone at this point. Like, Claremont's not even really trying to cover it up, even if he's not explicit about it. And I gotta say, like, Destiny and Mystique, to me, they're one of the great couples in all of comics. Like, as much as Mystique is sort of a terrible human being and Destiny's morals are questionable as well, their love is just so believable. It's so real. It's so strong and passionate and vibrant. And so that makes the fact that Destiny is going to, well, die in this storyline super, super tragic. Frankly, you know, you talk about how could anyone not perceive that? This arc is one of the ones that makes me angriest that they weren't allowed to be specified as an actual couple on the page. Destiny's death, Mystique reacts to it. The fact that those have to happen without explicit acknowledgement of them as a couple is such a painful parallel to the things that so many queer couples in real life go through and have gone through. That's a really good point, yeah. Mystique in some ways is left in the end of this as every partner who wasn't allowed in a hospital room you know, because they lack that legal status at that point, or whose name didn't show up in obituaries because someone's family didn't approve. The erasure of those relationships in context of major life events and tragedy and death is something that always hits me really hard when I see it happen in fiction for other reasons, because it's such, such a striking and tragic reflection of reality for a lot of people. No, I completely agree. And I mean, I do think it's important to acknowledge that this was the best we were able to get in 1989, and it was actually much better than a lot of what we were seeing in superhero comics. Like, Claremont really was pushing the envelope as hard as he could, even if it could have gone further and been much better. Yeah, I mean, again, he was working under the comics code, and this is fucked up and sad, and I'm still, you know, saying that this was progressive for its time is really significant, but I feel like we should also acknowledge just how fucked up that time was. Now, the clock in the room begins to strike midnight and destiny finds herself out in the cosmos of a dead universe and then made of crystal that shatters as the clock strikes 12. And this is 
I know it's not. I know it hadn't even been conceived at this point. But it is amazing how profoundly this reads as foreshadowing of the end of Legion Quest and the shattering of the Emkron Crystal. Right. What led into the Age of Apocalypse with yeah. the universe being rewritten. It really does feel that way. I agree. Is there such a thing as retroactive foreshadowing? Retfor, maybe? Retfor. It's like retcons, but when something that wasn't written as foreshadowing is later retconned to have been, becomes retfor? I would totally buy that. Absolutely. All right. Let's keep that word in circulation. I feel like it's a useful one. Yeah. Now, Destiny wakes up nice and early because her dream involved the universe ending and her dying, and Mystique meets up with her, and there's this nice, really just cute domestic scene of them as a couple in the morning before the phone rings, Destiny predicting it's Val Cooper before Mystique actually answers, and they get a mission. Freedom Force has been ordered to work with Forge to save Muir Isle. It'll get them good credit with the mutant community and hopefully get Forge working for the government designing weapons again. Mystique is not happy about this. She super hates Forge because Forge was the one responsible for the X-Men dying at the end of Fall of the Mutants, and that included Rogue, Mystique and Destiny's foster daughter, and probably the person in the world that Mystique cares most about. Destiny convinces her to go along and alludes to the fact that eventually Mystique and Forge are totally going to bone, although that's not going to happen for a few years yet. It'll be quite a while, it's true. Yeah. Regardless, this leads us into a great big fight issue number 255, as the Reavers assault Muir Isle, you know, continue to assault Muir Isle, and just fight everybody. And there is so much death and carnage and destruction and stuff in this issue, it's kind of nuts. And man, mom and dad Reaver really need to work with the kids on their battle patter. Oh, it's true, I love Bonebreaker here, as he's fighting Banshee. Flyboy thinks he's pretty hot stuff. Soon as I pump this little beauty up his tail, he'll be screaming in a key of agony! Uh, we've decided for the record that the key of agony is D minor. I'm just saying that line, it's it's so sexual. Yeah, it's really, it's uncomfortable. The Reavers are just bad at flirting, I think is what it comes down to. The Reavers are bad at everything. Yup. Like, they're okay at killing, but they're not even that great at it, especially if they require that much in the way of gear. I find the Reavers so damn boring. I feel bad about this. They're set up as this big bad right now, and they're pretty effective, but they're not interesting. You know, I'm kind of with you on that one. They kind of fall into the same box for me as Celine. A character who clearly the creators intended to be a great big deal, but for some reason just never clicked for me. Yeah, there's something really fundamentally anticlimactic about the Reavers. And honestly, I think it's more Pierce's Reavers than Lady Deathstrikes, because they're just like dudes with a bunch of cybernetic enhancements who have actual motivation to some extent. Pierce's Reavers are just goofy as hell. They're a guy with tank treads for legs. They are a pretty boy who spends a lot of this story as basically a disembodied head snapping at everyone. Well, he's not disembodied. He's on like a robot skeleton body. So the melee is still going on when Freedom Force's plane shows up and Deathstrike manages to take it down. And so it's just this grand melee at this point. And uh, as Forge saves Mystique from the flaming wreckage of the plane, now she's furious at him and orders him to guard Destiny at Moira McTaggart's lab. Basically, she's super worried since Destiny's been acting kind of cagey and kind of grim, and she doesn't want Forge around messing things up. So she's like, hey, watch over Destiny. If anything happens to her, it's your hide. Destiny, as soon as she has him alone, tells Forge, nope, you gotta go help Mystique or she's gonna die. And also, by the way, love her as much as I have with all your heart, because, you know, it's up to you now. And Forge says, My heart's spoken for, old woman. Thus speaks one aware solely of the present who perhaps forgets that, for all their passionate glory, it is the nature of storms ever to pass. And so, Forge leaves. He goes and helps Mystique out, and Destiny turns around and sees Legion. Hello, Legion. Were you perhaps expecting to find two of us here to serve your pleasure, silly boy? 
Outside, the fight continues. Pierce kills Stonewall. Oh, I like Stonewall. He had a nice little mustache. He was a lawyer. And Skullbuster is about to kill Mystique and Pyro when Forge uses his big fancy techno gun to blow Skullbuster in half. It's going to be ages before Skullbuster is resurrected. And the Reavers all flee. I mean, they've done a whole bunch of damage. And with Forge still in position to, you know, snipe at them, they figure there's not much more they can do. At which point, Tom, Sharon, and Moira bring Destiny's body to Mystique. She was killed off camera. And I think that's actually a really good decision. I mean, everyone knew it was coming, Destiny most of all herself, and seeing it would have just been gratuitous. It's almost sadder this way, honestly. Mystique, though, is furious. That's two you owe me, Forge. A debt that will never be forgiven. And one you can wager your soul will be repaid. In full measure. I really like how Mystique never, ever gets over Destiny's death. I mean, we saw as recently as the end of the Wolverines miniseries, right before Secret Wars, that it was still like the defining factor in her entire existence. Yeah, we see, you know, a good 20 years later, almost 30, a Mystique who is willing to destroy the universe for a chance to see Destiny again. Like, they are one of the great romances of comics and of Marvel. And this is... Again, man, the things that they can't acknowledge at this point are so starkly and profoundly present. Absolutely. So, you know, with most of the danger past, I mean, we've certainly had some casualties here. I mean, Legion is still just hanging out, so there's that. There is that, and that won't go well in the future. But uh, Banshee actually meets up with Forge to watch the sunset or rise. It's ambiguous. It's one of those. And offers him some presumably spiked cocoa as they sort of check in and talk about the future. Yeah, Polaris has told Banshee, at least, that the X-Men are alive. Because she got to see them back in the Savage Land, of course. And Banshee you know, asks Forge if he's a traveling man, and the implication is that the two of them are going to go look for the X-Men. And in fact, this is going to be a uh, plot line going forward, and they're actually really cool partners. Like, I love this concept, and I've not read all the issues in the upcoming run. Like, I've read about them, certainly, and I've read some of them directly, and so I'm really excited to see where this specific plot line goes. Now, speaking of those missing X-Men, let's check in with one of them. Well, sort of, yeah. Let's go to Cairo, Illinois. Oh, that's ironic. Sidebar, Cairo, Illinois. Really, Chris Claremont? It's pronounced Cairo in Illinois. The one in Illinois is. Well, it's still spelled Cairo, and it's still clearly a direct reference. Yeah, and there is basically a hurricane blasting through town as a silhouetted young woman looms above. To which a random dude trying to fight the flood with sandbags and stuff tells his friend, in all my born days, Zeb, ain't never seen a storm like thisin. Because, um, you know, a storm like thisin, because that's young storm right there, but she's different. Get it? Get it? But we have seen her, like, as a kid in multiple things before, mostly in, in Dreams and Visions, but we have totally seen Kid Storm. Well, Zeb hasn't, so there you go. Well, maybe Zeb should have been reading Uncanny X-Men. <laughs> so Storm collapses after the hurricane breaks, but she is found by a good Samaritan who gets just enough backstory for us to know that he is doomed as hell. Jacob Reese is too old for this. Too many all-night stakeouts and the junk food that went with them have taken their toll. But he ignores the twinge inside his chest as he turns back to the river. So yeah, when you get that kind of narration, you're pretty much doomed in a Claremont comic. Right, so he makes sure that the girl is taken to the hospital. She is handed over to a couple doctors who get names, but they're just tired, so they might yet be okay. They spend a weirdly long time just, like, analyzing her ethnicity in a scene that I remember having been extremely awkward and uncomfortable and kind of screwed up when I read it a decade and change ago and definitely still is now. They also note that electronic equipment still does not pick Aurora up. 
And so Lian Shen, one of the doctors or nurses, I'm not sure what she is. Uh, she's a doctor. She figures, okay, this kid must be a mutant. I'm not really sure what to do. Let me call my buddy Jacob Reese at the FBI. Probably he'll know what's up. So she calls him and we cut to, you know, this guy's office where he's lying dead in his chair and then wakes up with red eyes. Okay, so as near as I can tell, this dude's story is he ate hamburgers and then got possessed. Yes. Okay, so maybe there's a lesson to be learned here. I'm not really sure. Not really, no. But regardless, it's clear that Jacob Reese is possessed by, well, three guesses as to what psychic entity might be getting inside this dude's head. So he heads to the hospital to pick up Aurora, but she is gone. And Dr. Shen quickly realizes that he's up to no good. And the way she realizes this is so great because she's watching a security camera and he turns to it and just mugs and does a super evil smile. And she's like, oh, oh, that's bad news. Right. I love the way this works. It's just so goofy. Like, it's not just a hmm smile. It's a kind of smile. I love how you're conveying that with sound effects. You know, different smiles have different noises. That's, yeah, that's how it works. He's just goofily, goofily evil here. Okay, what that actually reminds me of is Gary Oldman in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula movie, which I freaking love as a movie. But at the beginning, he's like, you know, this cordial, if weirdly butt-haired looking old man that Jonathan Harker's talking to, like out in Transylvania. And he's just being all like, you know, steepling his fingers and being creepy. I should say that the hair on his head looks like a butt. We don't know what his butt hair is like. Oh, that's true. That's not uh, explained. Maybe in the director's cut. But um, yeah, he's looking all, you know, mostly normal. And then his shadow in the background is just like looming over the whole room with his claws out. Just and it's really wonderful. It just occurred to me if that had been directed by Brian Singer, we would have gotten like a 10 minute arc explaining that fucking hairstyle. We probably would have. Yeah. But anyway, it reminds me of that. And so, yeah, Aurora, in the meantime, has escaped her hospital bed. She's woken up. And it's pretty clear from the thought bubbles that we see that this is an Aurora that doesn't remember anything that's happened since she was actually this age, the age of her body, since she was a child. She remembers the evil one chasing her. And sure enough, Aurora and the Shadow King do have a backstory. She remembers her mentor, Ahmed, and she doesn't remember any of her life with the X-Men or anything like that. So she's being chased and Reese and the doctors are after her because to their eyes, at least to the doctor's eyes, hey, there was a little girl and we were worried about her and she's run away and maybe something's wrong. Dr. Shen was already suspicious. Dr. Stewart begins to raise objections and Reese just promptly psychically fries him, leaving nothing but a skeleton with perfect hair. I really love that the skeleton has perfect hair. Like he fries all of his flesh off, but his hair's still fine. It's cool. You know, it's a thing. The plan here is that the girl, Aurora, will be framed for murder. Now he's got Dr. Shen at his mercy and he is off to cackle and supervillain around. Again, the Shadow King is so gloriously unsubtle. Like Which he, is weird because he's a guy whose entire gambit depends on subtlety. Like he secretly seeps his way into people's minds and infiltrates them without them realizing. And that's how he propagates himself. But like he just can't resist twirling his mustache. I know. And I really respect that in a supervillain. So Amal Farouk, the Shadow King, whatever your name is, well done. I wish you wouldn't like torture and murder a ton of people. But if you're going to do something, at least you're doing it right. I have no idea how to segue from that to Psylocke. Like, that that's kind of a, a scene-ending line right there. Possibly an episode-ending line. Good God, Miles. Well, maybe we can just use the most effective segue of all and say, meanwhile... On an island in the South China Sea, Matsuo uh, Saryaba and his blue-black mullet 
have been called in by his ninja buddies. Now, Matsuo Suriyaba, he's a member of the Hand. He's this sort of young, rich dude. Later on, he's going to be associated with the Upstarts. He's going to be a major character going forward, and I remember him being kind of boring, so hopefully he'll be more interesting this time. In this scene, he at least is. His associates have called him in because a purple-haired telepath with no memories who is invisible to all of their electronic surveillance has washed up on the shore a week ago. Matsuo, however, recognizes her and says that the hand will have a use for her. And that's going to be the next arc we get to when we talk about the X-Men. And speaking of uncomfortable racial stuff, boy, howdy. But it's also really fascinating, so at least that's cool. On that awkward note, you've got questions. All right. Sean Irie asks in an email, I'd forgotten that Havoc and Madeline had a romantic relationship in Uncanny X-Men. So my question is, has there ever been an arc or alternate universe where Scott and Lorna have been romantically involved? There sure has, Sean. They are awkward exes in the Ultimate Universe. That's really hard to imagine. I mean, that they dated. Not the awkward part. The awkward part I totally buy. Well, it's, it's pretty significantly different versions of both characters. I suppose so. All right, what else? Um, let's see. Matt asks us, also via email, which Marvel character that isn't currently a mutant or X-Men do you think could be worked onto any of the X-Men teams with little to no alteration done to the character's bio and background? You know... Okay, maybe it's just because I'm in a Charles Soul frame of mind after we talked to him last episode, but Blindspot from Daredevil, like the one who's got an invisibility suit and is an undocumented immigrant and is really interesting, I think I'd love to see him with the all-new X-Men. Like, it would change up his status quo a lot, but he's already got a well-defined personality, and that changed status quo would really take his character in interesting directions. Or, and I think this may be my favorite part, Elsa Bloodstone, the monster hunter, I want to see her an extraordinary X-Men bouncing off of Storm and Magic. You just want Elsa Bloodstone on every team. I mean, I kind of want Elsa Bloodstone on every team. Every time I see her ever, I love her. Like, I don't know if anybody read the Secret Wars Marvel Zombies series by Cy Spurrier. I did. Well, we picked it up because we love Cy Spurrier, even though zombie books aren't our thing. And Elsa Bloodstone was the main character, and it was so good. So my answer is basically, I thought about this, and I couldn't come up with a bunch of things. But then, again, I don't know if this is because we just talked to Charles Soule or what, but I keep on thinking She-Hulk. And specifically on something along the lines of the first generation Peter David X Factor. So like the sort of odd couple um, working for the government team. I feel okay. like she'd be a very, very good fit for a group like that. So very character focused, a little bit snarky. Somewhere where she would be the team lawyer as well as She-Hulk. That makes sense to me. All right. We are an entirely listener supported podcast and some tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters. Today, I am handing the mic to Magneto. War is coming, Moira McTaggart. A great war between mutants, humans, and every faction thereof. A war that shall claim us all, body and soul. Unless a different crossover happens instead, of course. But I, the master of magnetism, shall gather what few allies remain. Chris White and Pedro Piquer, to ensure the survival of the mutant race. We shall be hated. We shall be feared. And we, Doctor, shall be right. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's back to Asgard. As we say farewell to a friend, spend some time in jail, and enjoy the final days of the New Mutants. Because Cable's on the way. Cable's on the way.